Welcome to The Brief, brought to you by BVO2. Today's guest is Porter Heffernan. He's talking about CASEL, the Canadian anti-spam legislation, and how it applies to you both inside and outside your organization. Hi, today we're talking about CASEL, Canada's anti-spam legislation. So instead of me just talking about the details and the legislation of the policy, I thought today it'd be more interesting to actually bring in a lawyer who's talking about this from a completely different side of the business. So today, our partners at Edmund Hardinan uh, are here with us. Uh, it's Porter Heffernan, a lawyer who's actually helping us understand how this policy applies to everyone from inside the corporation to outside the corporation. Welcome. Thank you, Andrew. So specifically, the legislation, if we rounded it out and just had a, a very short description of what the, the legislation is, how would you describe it? It's based on, uh, on two main requirements for commercially electronic messages. The first is that uh, if you're sending a commercially electronic message, a CEM, you have to have the consent of the recipient, express or implied. The second is that you have to incorporate certain elements into the form of that message, contact information in a variety of forms, as well as a, an unsubscribe mechanism. So we talk about consent. Can you, can you break down the different types of consent for us? So the Act contemplates two different types of consent. The first is express consent, which we call the gold standard under the Act. Um, that's where someone specifically opts in to receiving commercial electronic messages. Express consent is indefinite in duration. It lasts until someone unsubscribes from receiving messages in the future. So it really is the most valuable form of consent you can have. If you don't obtain express consent, the Act does provide for implied consent in certain specific circumstances. So those include, for example, where you have an existing business relationship with uh, an individual, so they've purchased something from you within the last two years or uh, engaged in another transaction, or even requested a quote or requested information about your organization within the last six months. A lot of the people we work with have monthly emails, bulletins, things that go out. And inside that can be probably uh, conceived that there's some sort of solicitation for engagement. When people sign up for those and there's that button that says, I, I agree to receive this, does that fall under this, or do we need to go and get reproof of engagement? It depends on the format in which consent was, was collected initially. Um, the Act provides both for implied consent in certain specified circumstances and express consent, so someone can explicitly give consent to receive commercial electronic messages. And one of the ways the Act is uh, stronger than virtually any other legislation in the world uh, is that it's not enough to just have someone purchase something from your website, for example, and click, I agree to the terms of this transaction, where there's a pre-checked box that says, I agree to receive commercially electronic messages. To get express consent that's valid under the Act, someone actually has to actively check that box and then agree to the terms of the transaction, for example. They call it opt-in consent, as distinguished from the pre-checked box, the opt-out consent. How far back does that go? So say that I signed up for a electronic engagement uh, three years ago. And I receive those bulletins every week. The, the fact that you signed up initially and the fact that you've been receiving those bullets is not enough to count as implied consent, unfortunately. So you have to go back and uh, scrub or sanitize your database, meaning you have to try to obtain express consent from as many people in that database. Uh, where you can't obtain express consent, you have to look and see whether the other individuals might fall into one of the exemptions under the Act. Interesting. Or implied consent, and if they don't, then you have to either remove them from the database or carry the risk that, uh, that you may breach the act by emailing them. Third-party lists, even though they're not a great way to start a, an engagement, they do exist. 
and a lot of people do use them for garnering new members or garnering new relationships. How's that going to work out? If you're buying third-party lists now with this legislation in force, you need to seek legal advice is the bottom line answer. Uh, third-party lists uh, now carry substantial risks for organizations that have been purchasing or leasing them. Um, as an organization, if you send a message to a contact in your database and that message is in breach of the act because the contact hasn't given consent, you're liable for that message and you're exposed to the risk of those fines up to $1 million or $10 million for the organization. The CRTC doesn't care where the list came from mm. in applying those fines. So it's no excuse to say, but I bought it from an organization. So I didn't collect it. I didn't seek consent. The CRTC is going to look at your actions in sending an email without consent. Uh, part of what that means in practice for organizations is that they have to do more due diligence if they're going to be buying lists or leasing lists. They have to look at incorporating provisions in their contracts with list providers where the list provider provides some assurances and perhaps even an indemnification uh, in order to reassure the organization that the list was collected in compliance with Castle and the organization isn't going to be acquiring any liability by using the list. This is going to change how businesses work. Uh, people now either have had to have a relationship or working with someone for up to two years, that's right. And then besides that, you, anybody past that, you've got to go back and, and find a new way to communicate with them. Well, there's no, there's no question that it, it's going to have a serious impact on how many, many organizations do business. Uh, there's a great deal of concern in the business community about the impact this was going to have, not just on uh, mass email marketing, but on day-to-day -day business communications. Because the law is not restricted, as you, as you mm -hmm. likely know, the law is not restricted to bulk emailing. Uh, the law applies to individual unsolicited emails as well. So there was concern that this might impact a business's ability to communicate with its suppliers or its business partners. So uh, one of the most significant exclusions day-to-day -day is what I'd refer to as the intra-company and the inter-company exclusion. Okay. So there's an exclusion for messages sent by an employee of an organization to another employee of the organization that concern the organization's activities. So your internal communications among your employees are generally not going to be captured by the scope of the legislation. Uh, there's also a similar exclusion for communications between employees of different organizations that have an existing relationship. So if you're communicating with your supplier, uh, your contractor, your business partner, uh, you're not going to have to worry about the application of CASEL to your day-to-day -day communications with that individual, individuals employed by that organization, as long as your communications are about the business activities of that organization or your shared enterprise. So those, those exemptions are perhaps the most significant in my view. How does that play out for membership? Like if we're looking at members and membership groups or uh, facilitating a group that already has a relationship, you know, but you've been dormant, mm -hmm. and you're, but you're a member, and they're soliciting more... Uh, activity for uh, buying into ad space, buying into uh, some sort of event, playing out that way where it's still a push of, you know, definitely, definitely pushing a commerce relationship. Yeah. How does the membership play out? Because you're a member of that. Mm -hmm. So you, you will normally have uh, an exemption for your communications or, or rather have consent for your communications with um, your members and your existing clients. Um, as long as there's a contract in force between the two of you, um, when we're talking about transactional clients or single single purchase, single lease, single rental, whatever the transaction may be, you have a, a implied consent to email that individual for a period of up to two years after the transaction. Okay. 
um, where we're talking about potential clients. So if you're uh, engaged in marketing or business development, uh, your leads, you have a period of six months uh, from the date of any inquiry that they make or request for quote or any communication they have with you in that respect. You have a period of six months to send commercial electronic messages. Social media networks, how's that going to play out? We've got these independent networks that are outside of our, what we call digital communication store inbox. They notify us, but there's inter integration happening there. Be really interesting to see how that plays out. Do those play out the same way? The answer to that is a, is a little gray. And, and okay. we talked earlier about the, the disconnect between the pace of regulation and the, the pace of development of technology. And again, we, we see that here. Uh, they're focused almost exclusively in the, the thrust of the legislation on uh, its application to email. Okay. Um, the legislation is clearly applicable to text messages as well. Okay. Uh, and it's broadly applicable to electronic messages generally. When we talk about social media, that's one area that, that still remains a little gray. It's not clear how the CRTC is going to interpret messaging through social media. Mm -hmm. Some of the commentary is suggesting that uh, simply posting something on your wall on Facebook or tweeting something is not going to be captured because you're broadcasting the message in that case to people who've subscribed to follow you to receive your messages. Uh, but when you send a targeted message, a direct message through Facebook, through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through any social media platform, uh, the suggestion is that's likely going to be captured because you're still sending a message and the message itself would be unsolicited so it would fall within the, the uh, scope of the legislation. Internationally, we've seen laws like this come into play. So Canada is late to the game. There's no question they're late to the game. But this is the harshest law that we've seen across the other countries. So is this that we've just learned from other countries and then now we're applying a, a tougher legislation? Do you have any insight on that? It's hard to say exactly what, what drove the, the harshness of the legislation. I think there's, there's no question that it's the toughest legislation in the world. If you compare it to the U.S. Uh, CAN-SPAM Act, which has been enforced for a number of years, uh, this has harsher requirements. The uh, potential penalties under this law are, are far more, more significant than in the U.S., um, as for what's driving that, uh, I would speculate that it's it's an effort by the Canadian government to be a leader in this field. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that the outcome uh, has struck the right balance. I'm not sure that it's it's in the end a positive development for Canadian businesses, given the burden that it imposes and the risks that it carries. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's well intentioned. It is it is Canada trying to be a leader in this field. Um, particularly after coming late to the party, as you say. Is there any positives from this? I mean, I'm not saying it's a negative situation. It's, you know, spam is going to go down, and I'm going to start uh, having to really think about what I receive in my mailbox, which is great. Um, but is there is there any positives to this do you, that you see coming out of it? I think there are certainly some positives. Uh, one, personally, for me, is that I now have a stock template response to spam that I receive, where I say, that's very interesting. I have no interest in receiving your product. But are you aware that Castle comes into force on July 1st? And perhaps we could assist you in complying and uh, not avoiding sending messages like this in the future. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, so I think from, from the user's perspective, from the recipient's perspective, there are some positives. And I, commentators are divided on whether this legislation is a good thing, uh, looking at it from the user's perspective, or a bad thing, looking at it from a business perspective, where it imposes more regulation, more risk, more red tape. We talked a lot about different approaches today different things that people need to pay attention to. What do you think the key points are before we leave today? Uh, first, don't underestimate the risk involved in legislation. Uh, second, it's uh, get moving on compliance right away and make it a top-down exercise from the board of directors all the way down. Uh, and third, uh, make sure you're doing everything reasonably possible to comply so that you can take advantage of, 
of the defense and due diligence of a complaint is filed. So this is all great information. Porter, how do you guys help? How does EH Law get involved in a corporation to help them get ready for this? There's a few things we can do to help, and we, we have been, been doing with our clients. Uh, sort of first step and the most significant step in my mind is uh, helping organizations understand what they have to do here. Uh, this legislation is not a masterpiece of draftsmanship. Uh, it's clumsy and <laughs> it's difficult to navigate. And so for a layperson, it can be hard to just look at the face of the law and understand what they have to do to make sure they're compliant. So we've been assisting clients with um, training and presentations for uh, senior management, the board of directors, or for marketing and salespeople to help them understand. So that's sort of the opening uh, opening thing we can do to assist our clients. Uh, the next step is uh, assisting clients with their due diligence. Uh, due diligence provides a defense to complaints under the Act, and due diligence requires managing your employees, ensuring your employees are trained and have the tools they need to maintain compliance. So we've assisted a number of our clients with the development of uh, policies that can be applied throughout the organization, uh, policies that require standard conduct from employees in sending commercial electronic messages, and give clear guidance to those employees that, that they're required to comply, and if they don't comply, there may be consequences to them, including disciplinary consequences. So if a complaint is ever filed against an organization and they have one of these policies in place, and they've trained their employees on the application of these policies, they can stand before the CRTC and say, we've done our due diligence, we've done everything we can, and the fact that an employee chose to, to breach the legislation or didn't adhere to our policy, uh, that's not something we can prevent. Uh, what we will do is take uh, steps to, to address that situation and, and do what we can to uh, re-educate our employees on our policies. And I think the risk to the organization then from the CRTC will be lower as a result. So, Porter, thank you for the conversation today. I think we're just at the infancy in understanding what this is really going to be. Uh, it's great to see that you're handling it from the policy side, from the business side, from helping uh, groups and individuals see how it's going to apply to them. And this is going to be a big change for all of us. I'm really interested to see what happens as of July 1st. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Brief. If you want to be a guest on the show, drop us a line. To check out more episodes, visit bvo2.com.